and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. At the start of February, New Zealand's Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Defence, Winston Peters and Judith Collins, met with their Australian counterparts. It would be fair to say some of what came out of this meeting didn't go down well with China, New Zealand's biggest trade partner. To discuss this and more about China, I'm joined by David Mann, the Managing Director of Mann China Investment Management. Now, David, who is based in China, is currently here in New Zealand. So unlike our previous podcast with him where he's been our guest, he joins me in the studio today. So, David, welcome. It is great to see you here in person. Thank you, Gareth. Look, um, it's been an interesting time, obviously, over summer with the new government coming in and um, this, this, this meeting that upset China. So just to give a bit of context for listeners who may or may not be on, on top of the issues... So after Peters and Collins meeting with their Australian counterparts, the Chinese embassy in Wellington issued a statement. There were some familiar concerns raised that the ministers had talked about um, Xinjiang, home of the, the Uyghur people, Tibet, Hong Kong and Taiwan, which of course were described by the embassy's statement as purely Chinese internal affairs, which is very standard wording. But another area of concern that arose was OXIS. So OXIS is a... Indo-Pacific security partnership between Australia, the United States and United Kingdom, working towards assisting Australia in acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. So the, the embassy in Wellington, the Chinese embassy, described OXIS as a stark manifestation of Cold War mentality that seeks to establish a nuclear-related military alliance targeting third parties. Subsequently, Australian officials have briefed their New Zealand counterparts on the so-called Pillar 2 of OXIS, which is focused on developing and sharing non-nuclear military technology, such as drones and hypersonics, among the OXIS partners. So, David, I think it's fascinating that, that the new New Zealand government is, shall we say, flirting with joining OXIS. I'm just wondering how significant an impact could doing so have on New Zealand's relationship with China? If New Zealand were to join AUKUS in any form, whether it was its phase one or two, it would have an impact, definitely. And it would be a major sign of a change in policy of perhaps two generations. So I think we have to wait to see what Christopher Luxton says rather than what Winston Peters and Judith Collins say. They were two people in Australia. There's tremendous pressure on New Zealand to join in the criticisms of China that Australia and America in particular um, seem to work together on. And that's gone on for a number of administrations. So for whatever reason, they made those statements. I think also you've got a, a coalition that has three very distinct parts and there are internal power politics perhaps going on that. I can only speculate. Um, but I think if we look at the Chinese response in China, only the English language daily had an editorial mentioning it. The usual media um, organs did not cover it at all. And the language was pretty anodyne. So at this stage, the Chinese government would be waiting to see in this new coalition what our actual position really was. I'd be surprised if um, Christopher Luxton, who knows China well, knows the region well, and is close to John Key, who ran a very even policy, as did Helen Clark, in respect of China and also our the countries that share our values. They're not our allies. New Zealand is a non-allied country. We are 
um, committed to defend Australia as they are New Zealand if we are attacked. Beyond that, we don't have an alliance with anybody. So um, even Five Eyes is an agreement to share intelligence. So I think it's too early to say that we've chosen to join this very strange deal that Australia's got itself into, which is effectively building a nuclear submarine in a non-nuclear country for America that'll kick in in about 30 years. I mean, to me, this is um, a statement by a shrinking empire, which America is, um, and we can't overplay its real strategic uh, significance. So I think it's too early to draw too many conclusions. Obviously, one of the key issues that we talk about in New Zealand in terms of our relationships with China on the one hand and the United States on the other is balancing security and trade relationships because I guess traditional security partners being Australia and the US dating back to World War II. And obviously, China is our, our biggest export market, our biggest source of imports. We have a free trade, high-profile free trade deal with China. We don't have anything like that with the US um, obviously. So I guess, you know, looking particularly from a trade perspective, I mean, we, we are speculating here, obviously, because as you say, we don't know if if the New Zealand government's going to join Oxus in any form yet. You've mentioned Christopher Luxon's um, knowledge of the area, his obviously close relationship with former Prime Minister John Key, who's been quite outspoken on maintaining good ties with China in the last, even in, within the last year. But you know, if we were to, would there be trade fallout? Possibly there would be. New Zealand is not exceptional. We don't count in any real strategic sense. We matter to America because we sit across Antarctica and there is a South Pacific platform of sorts in their strategic imagination, but not in reality. I mean, New Zealand has been moving away from the US security relationship since the end of the Vietnam War. And the generations of politicians, Helen Clark, even Don Brash, and you made reference to their co-authored article, um, reflecting on a time when America didn't do so well in Asia and New Zealand played quite a price for participating in what was a debacle. Then there was the choice that um, Helen Clark made not to go to Iraq. And probably, I think in my lifetime, that is a, an act by New Zealand that defined its independence that really, in a material sense, we backed ourselves on our own sovereignty and didn't go to an illegal war. And let's remember, a million people died in the Middle East because of that war. Um, and so New Zealand really gained a position in the eyes of some countries as being a country of integrity and independence. That's all we've got. The moment we begin to move closely to any one power, including China, and we become partisan to them, we lose all identity quite quickly in terms of having any real foreign policy. One would argue that Australia's mortgaged its foreign policy to deal with its strategic insecurity. Its foreign affairs, its defence um, establishment is really a subset of the US. Um, so we need to make every effort to choose each time a challenge comes in our own interests, Maybe we need to speak out at some stages against things that we think China is doing wrong in terms of international law. And I hope we do, because that's part of New Zealand's um, pattern. We work to international law. When it comes to their internal affairs, 
all countries should be careful on criticising the internal affairs of other countries. And I won't go into the um, whateverist scenarios of do we still trade with America, although there are a million people dead in the Middle East. We don't interfere in the internal workings of other countries. When it comes to Xinjiang, New Zealand needs to try and understand Xinjiang. I have been there a number of times, um, I think over 13 times. I've spent many weeks in many parts of Xinjiang. And there is a security issue on the Afghan-Kyrgyz border where um, radicalised Uyghurs and Uzbeks are coming back in from the Taliban and they do bad things. They kill people and they are, they're terrorists, small group of them. The Chinese security um, apparatus in Xinjiang faces the same dilemma that perhaps the British faced in Northern Ireland. Who are the enemy? Everyone looks the same. Do we take this guy? Do we understand that perhaps we take people and um, we take the whole, all the boys in the family to work out who actually did the deed? And they overstep, as security services often do in those situations. But the whole province to be seen as a penal colony, there really isn't the evidence of that. And I've travelled extensively in Xinjiang. I don't want to apologise for things that are going wrong there and the missteps. You could almost call it the colonial dilemma. And we think back on our own history and the majority dealing with minority is not always a pretty picture. It excuses nothing for the current period. But why are we judging a situation we actually don't know very much about? The counter-argument is the Chinese don't let us in to have a look. That has been the case. That's changing now. So let's really learn for ourselves what is the situation up there. But why are we judging this particular country? And one of the reasons that New Zealand needs to be cautious of getting drawn into is America sees China as a threat. It is a threat to its power. It's a threat to its economic influence globally. And it wants to bring in partners under the principle of we share the same values. We are from the same systems. We share systems with Britain and America and Canada. Do we share values? Do we share values with Australia when they had a recent vote in terms of their Indigenous people that I think shocked New Zealanders, given our own understanding and history? So I don't think we do share values, particularly with America. We aren't keen to invade other countries in our own economic interest. So I think there are things where, again, we also have to realise we're a small country. Big countries have big problems. They stumble sometimes resolving them. So New Zealand's position is that when we see something, though, that we don't like, one could argue the use of Article 23, the security law in Hong Kong, was too extensive after the problems they had with protests in 2019. And New Zealand did raise concerns about that. That's fine. China doesn't like it. That's okay. You could also say that friends often do raise issues. But don't do it in concert with Britain, Australia and America. Don't join the ganging up of the insecurity of Western nations because an Asian nation is getting wealthier, is getting more powerful, because that's really what's happening. This is an issue of uh, grinding together of, of, of civilizations. And it's also the other, the difference, which does lead to a measure of racism. So... We need to tread carefully. I don't envy our politicians. It's hard to get the language right. I think um, New Zealand has done pretty well historically. I've got confidence that Christopher Luxton and his team will manage this. 
we may end up leaning a little more towards the American position on some things because the Chinese are investing now in the Pacific. They're having more of a presence, but they're not a security threat. I mean, it's absurd to think that a space as large as the Pacific and a handful of loans to a few countries is infringing on anything to do with New Zealand's security. So it's not an easy issue, but um, in the end, New Zealand has managed complex issues in the past. And we have to stop saying, ah, but it's more complex now. To what extent over recent years has the Chinese government changed? I mean, I note with President Xi Jinping, he appears to have centralised power more. Obviously, there was a big issue last year, I think, from memory, where President Joe Biden was of the US was referring to him as a dictator or dictatorial, and that obviously upset China. But he does appear to be more authoritarian perhaps now than Chinese leaders were, say, when we signed the free trade deal with them back in 2008, was it, from memory? Right. So, so, I mean, to what extent is China a different regime now than it, than it was then? China is clearly a more authoritarian regime. There's no question about it. It's also over 20 times larger as an economy than when we signed the free trade agreement. So its management is a big challenge. So many things have been centralised and conformed because the place would begin to break up if they didn't. That's on a policy basis. I'm talking about commercial policy, um, taxation, these things. And that's been um, very well disciplined and generally... China is better governed, there's less corruption, and there is more consistency across commercial law, particularly um, through the provinces. When it comes to power, there's no question that Xi Jinping is more powerful than probably any um, leader since 49. Even Mao had his opponents. The Cultural Revolution was actually a power struggle within the Chinese system and government. Um, given the kind of facade of a movement, but it was a power struggle. So you have a leader who has departed from, I would say, more the practice of only two terms. You know, really the constitution, when you've got a one-party state, can be shaped any way that you like. So to say that he's broken the law by, or he had to change the law profoundly because otherwise the system wouldn't have taken it. He's chosen to have a third term. I didn't think he would, but seeing what he did, I realised that the anti-corruption campaign was not finished. There were still internal opponents to the manner in which they were trying to restructure the legal system. And, okay, he needed more time. We get that. Uh, we don't damn Mahathir Mohammed for building Malaysia as a one, almost a consistent leader or Lee Kuan Yew, who was in office for a very long time. We call them fathers of nations. Um, so we've got to be careful in terms of context. But I do think it would be healthy that within the third term, she puts in place a succession plan that is visible to the political establishment and also the people. Uh, the guy's 70. Um, there are issues always of as older leaders get older, America seems immune to this, but most countries, where you want mental acuity, you're worried about health. But in the end, I don't believe any leader is bigger than the party. And I don't believe the party is bigger than the people. So there is a sort of general grassroots self-correcting rhythm 
in Chinese politics, which I think we should have confidence in. When we previously um, had you on as a guest in the podcast in September of last year, you talked a bit about um, what the Communist Party needed to do to shore up the tacit support of the people, which is fascinating discussion. Now, I mean, for any listeners who don't know, you've, you've lived in China for around 40 years now, so you, you've been there a long time. How has the relationship between the party and the people evolved? And what are the sort of key issues we should watch, I guess, to get a sense of how good or how strained the relationship is between the party and the people in China? If you see the Chinese Communist Party as the sole arbiter of all things in China, if you see it as a singular monolith of power, then there is a relationship between the people and the party. But actually, the Chinese Communist Party and the government are a product of the people. This is not a country who has been under an, an oppressive, gangsterish um, regime. This is a country that evolved out of 200 years of being colonized, bullied, fragmented, invaded. And it was unified under Mao, and it launched into trying to rebuild itself. And it stumbled. It stumbled with a great leap forward. It stumbled with the Cultural Revolution. It did a lot of very uh, flawed things, and many people suffered and died. The correction under Deng Xiaoping, and I would argue we are still living in the era of Deng Xiaoping and his reforms, was to allow for a gradual free market economy and a gradual liberalization of society, and that's taken place. Over a short period of time, given the fact that it's not just 1949 that we're referring to, for the previous 5,000 years, China was run by emperors. There wasn't a pluralistic uh, political system. There was nothing resembling democracy. So China's an evolving nation from its own history. And as much as we benchmark 1949, we should also think of the government, the way the administration functions, in the context of the Qing Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty or the Yuan Dynasty. This is a culture. Um, even more than you would say it's a country. So I look at a country that had no real rule of law. I look at a country that had no real public health system, no education system. It's built those. It's currently in a illiberal phase. We have a single leader who is very conservative. But the China I went to in the mid-1980s has changed so much over the following decades. I see a freer, healthier more mobile society, people who travel the world once the world gets its confidence back and consumption really picks up again, 200 million people will travel the world going on holiday, including New Zealand. So um, this idea that somehow it's going back to some feudal closed society under singly thinking people is actually a Western condescension and totally misses the evolution of China. China is not invading other countries. We talk about Taiwan. That was a part of China that was blocked in returning to it at the end of its civil war because of the Korean War. It's not going to be invaded by China. America can't garrison it. It remains in a kind of odd status quo. And I think everyone wants to keep it that way. This idea that she's going to invade it in his tenure is crazy. So what threat is China to us except greater economic influence in the region? So I think we look at 
the mo- we have to look at modern China in its historical context and decide what threat does New Zealand really measure from China. I see opportunity, but a rough ride between those that are more powerful than us and have issues with China. Yeah, that is a nice segue onto my next question because obviously we've been talking primarily about New Zealand's relationship with China, which is, you know, an elephant and an ant, I guess. You said, you know, strategically, New Zealand's not important. We understand we're a small country at the bottom of the world. The big key relationship, of course, is between China and the United States. Now, obviously, we have a US election this year. And as um, Helen Clark and Don Brash, the, the, the former Prime Minister, former National Party leader, mentioned in the article they co-authored for The Herald recently, um, the, United, the US rela- uh, attitude towards China obviously hardened considerably under Donald Trump's presidency and has stayed there under Joe Biden. So with a US election this year and those two looking to be the two candidates again, it might be the only thing that, that the Democrats and Republicans agree on is taking a hard line on, on China. So I'm just wondering, um, in terms of China's relationship with the US, what would be the circuit breaker from China's perspective, I guess, to improve its relationship with the US at the moment? As much as being away from New Zealand for 40 years really disqualifies me from commenting on New Zealand politics, although I have been, um, although, and we have a very large American client, but um, I don't really know what will come, but I do see a principle, which is that whoever wins the election in November, the policy towards China will only tighten. It won't improve in a kind of strategic, in a strategic sense. The economic relationship, though, continues. Trade has fallen with the US in terms of Chinese goods landed in America, but China being the supply chain for those that moved away from China to produce in Vietnam and Mexico has increased. So in dollar value last year, China was 30% of world trade value. In most normal years, it's 30% of world trade anyway. So whatever America is trying to do to decouple economically, it's not working. If anything, the relationship is growing further. I can't think of a sector in the US economy, domestic sectors, that doesn't depend upon China except perhaps pharmaceuticals. So these two countries have a very unusual relationship. They're almost, they are in a state of virtual Cold War without shooting at each other because of the various tariffs and sanctions and America blocking technology, et cetera. And yet they are um, deeply connected in trade. And they're both connected in all across the world in trade. That was never the case between the Soviet Union and the US. So that term, which I always thought was a pretentious thing that people said in speeches on China, the Thucydides trap, trying to allude to some classical education, there is something of that. These two city-states in ancient Greece, rivalry, no reason other than the other is growing and getting stronger. Maybe I'll lose something myself. Um, that is happening. And I think we're going to see for a very long time increased tensions between the two countries and increased pressure on New Zealand to take a strategic side. Economically, it's not unknown territory. China is already bigger than the US if you take its purchasing power parity. That's the way the World Bank has assessed it, the IMF and the OECD. If you look at China's economy in terms of dynamics, 
um, they have consumed last year five times the amount of electricity than the American economy consumed. In renewables alone, the, fire, the major Western provinces, Tibet, Xinjiang, um, Qinghai, Ningxia, Gansu, they alone in solar and wind power constitute the entire American ele electrical grid, electricity grid. So um, the scale of these two economies is such that one just can't lose and one just can't win. But we are locked into this tense relationship nonetheless because of deep insecurity in um, America's case. And China's still not getting it right in describing itself and responding to the world. It needs to develop a better narrative. I am seeing the seeds of it since the foreign minister was um, uh, uh, resigned last year or fired and uh, a new one brought in. There's a different tone in diplomacy coming. The wolf warrior years, I think, are behind us. So there is something moving, but China still needs to learn how to talk to the rest of the world and respond to criticisms rather than react, not show peevishness when um, it's being told by Brussels that its EVs are the result of unfair subsidies, which isn't the case just that French car makers are going to lose too much money. Um, so China has a lot to fix and improve in its own dialogue. That's very interesting. We'll move on to the the Chinese economy, um, which we've been talking around so far, but specifically we had the um, consumer price um, data out, official data out recently, showing the biggest fall in 14 years in January, marking fourth consecutive monthly fall. Producer prices also down. So there's been this talk of, of, of deflation for, for a while now. Just wondering, I mean, how concerning is this in China? And, and how would, would average person in the street in China be noticing this, if mm. they are at all? The intellectual economics gives us a number of figures because – Go back eight years, 12 years, you have massive growth rates of an economy that is developing still in many parts from a low base. We have now come to a very solid high base. Um, the Chinese economy, for instance, has grown 5.3% last year. India grew in excess of 7%. Per capita GDP in India is $2,500. In China, it's arguably 10 Twelve, fifteen thousand um, dollars. It's still one fifth of that of the U.S., but it's if you take its eleven coastal provinces, they constitute a developed country. So here's this patchwork: you go interior, you go west. These are still developing countries in a sense, although they're provinces. Over six hundred million people earn less than three hundred New Zealand dollars a month, and they're working hard to get into the middle class. So in this patchwork, the data is tough to apply. At the moment, without question, there is subdued consumption. People are not spending on things that are considered um, unnecessary. They're not going to buy a new house in some cities because they want to save and wait until the bottom has been hit in terms of the um, fall in housing prices. They'll wait to renovate until they're more confident their salaries will rise perhaps this year or next year. They will also look at things like Key indicators, the capital markets, stock markets in China are a tough call because the government's too involved in them and they don't actually function 
as they do in other countries in terms of a reflection of an economy and an irrigator of commerce and industry. But in many parts of China, there's no real sense of the country's not doing well. The people that you normally hear from are the middle class and upper middle class. They're educated, speak English, talk to journalists. They're worried about their assets because they have quite a few assets. But the average savings rate in China is still 40%. That's a 40% household savings rate, highest in the world. So when they decide they're going to buy again, they'll buy. And then this economy will come back very steadily and it will come back in a way that will have an impact on New Zealand. So we're going through a period of the post-COVID hangover that the whole world is still going through. You know, we talk about China in isolation. Look at global consumption. Look at New Zealand growth rates. They're not great. This is normal. The pandemic was huge. Even the Second World War didn't touch every human being on the planet with the same hand of fear, with the same uncertainty. So I think we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with the global economy and therefore a little bit with the Chinese economy. Nonetheless, the isolation of the closure of China for three years had a huge impact. And there are losses and there are contradictions in the system that have been highlighted that really are a challenge to the government. And I would add that they probably don't know what to do at this stage. I don't see a lot of fiscal change. I don't see the kind of stimulus they could apply, especially in the healthier areas of the property sector, which denotes a level of uncertainty. And although you want less intervention now in many countries post-COVID from government and the Crown, in a place like China, you want more and they're not doing it. So that's partly a, a cause of this um, uh, flat economy and to some extent deflationary forces. I think they'll get their heads around that because they're pragmatic. And I think by the time we get into the autumn, we will see um, much stronger growth. Now that said, I said that beginning of last year, about September last year, and I was wrong. And we're still in the similar doldrums now. So I'm guessing but I do think that the grassroots activity that I see as I travel in China will have a lot more effect by the time we come into the Chinese um, autumn. Okay. So you, you're talking there about a bit about the, the, the stimulus. I mean, China's been famous in times, difficult times in, 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 in the past, with recent past, with monetary and fiscal stimulus, but that's not happening now. Do you, do you think that that is is coming though? Do you think that, I mean, you're kind of alluding there that you think they'll probably go down that route? What we observed um, in the last six months was that knowing the property sector needed to be allowed to continue to sort of break down and dissipate in terms of being the big risk it had posed the economy and that it could not recover to the same boom years, the government allowed or pushed the state-owned financial and banking system to lend to the tech sector considerably. And the growth in the tech sector has been profound. It's not as big as the engine that the property sector was pre-COVID, but it is much bigger than we really had any idea it could become. And that's a very powerful thing in the economy because going forward, that has a knock-on effect in the rest of the economy in a way that you could argue even housing does with all its ancillary um, stimulus of buying appliances for houses and um, materials and, and, and building companies, people buying cars in new suburbs. The tech sector is a really good engine for the Chinese economy. 
And also, given the fact that China is being isolated on technology, there is a strategic reason why China will push that further. So I can see some strong engines. The other one is catering and tourism. Catering is very good for New Zealand because it means that Fonterra will be selling its products to the food services sector. And by the way, we always look at Fonterra, which are not a client, I should say, that they failed in China on being mate. They screwed up on the farm systems. They didn't really. They got a new management system much better than the previous one. They sold the farms at a good price and actually got out of being mate at a pretty good price too. Now, they're huge in China. They're, they're the arbiter of ingredients pricing for, for everyone selling to China and the domestic industry. So we're doing one well in China. Zespri will do 30% more kiwi fruit this year. It's a premium product still. It's in that basket of premium food products. So New Zealand's exposure to China as it continues to recover and is already recovering in the tourist area, in the food services area, and in, in catering restaurants, etc. it's very good for us. But I think it will spread to more areas of the economy as the year progresses. So the government will think on its feet. It'll try and come up with some better policies. My big regret is this wasn't the shock to the government that they realised unless they had a private sector banking and finance system, at least 40% the size of the current state-owned one, they're never going to manage to finance and and meet the potential of the economy that they have. And I still don't see that coming. And that's a regret because they've had a, a major wake-up call. Maybe it's going to happen. I don't see it at the moment. So I still think that we're going to find that China's potential is restrained because of that one factor. Well, look, David, that's really interesting as ever, chatting with you about uh, about China. I think we'll, we'll leave it there for today. That's David Mann, who's the Managing Director of Mann China Investment Management, normally based in Beijing and travels around China a lot, but is currently here in New Zealand. So thanks a lot for that, David. And I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz with another of our Of Interest podcasts. 